The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, you were away last week at a number of conferences, and one was in Germany that you went to, talking about China relations in the broader kind of universe that we're in. And it's all part of this discussion that seems to be happening right now at a lot of conferences in terms of trying to figure out that the moment we're in right now. And it's one of these things where you know something big is happening. You know change is underway, but you just don't know where it's going and what's happening. Tell us a little bit about some of the conversations that you had and some of the themes that were raised at this conference in Germany. It'd be interesting to see particularly also how Africa and Global South regions featured into the broader conversation. Yes, absolutely. So the conference was arranged by Armut Schmidt Stiftung, and it was in Hamburg. And I can't be very specific about what was said because it was under Chathamhouse rules, but it was focusing on emerging global orders and particularly the way that different parts of the world think about China. And what was quite kind of striking for me there was that most of the kind of discussions that took place in the context of Euro-China relations and US-China relations tended to assume that what we're looking at in the future is a kind of a bipolar situation, you know, kind of between Western power, like a big coalition of Western powers and China on the other side. Whereas a lot of the people who were coming from a global South perspective, and that included, you know, some respondents also from Asia, they tend to come from a place where the popular idea was one of multipolarism. So not essentially West versus China, but many different poles in which the West had, has a smaller role than it currently has, you know, like where it doesn't have that unique role of essentially setting the rules of, of the game. But where like these countries, you know, India, Indonesia, Nigeria, other kind of like large global South powers are playing with different kind of partners all at once. And where all of them are also thinking of themselves as kind of upcoming global powers rather than fitting into some kind of coalition with the West or with China. So it was really revealing in that sense. Yeah, I imagine that in places like Europe and the United States, that that kind of thinking doesn't go down very well. I, too, was at a conference recently, and a very well-known professor from Johns Hopkins University, not one we've had on this show before, by the way, someone who's not involved in the China space at all. And after my speech, effectively to that, if what you're saying, too, that we're going into a much more multipolar universe, he came back and he said, listen, Eric, you know, with all due respect— you know, this is not a time for Zimbabwe and for Bolivia. This is a moment of great power competition between Europe, the United States, and China. And I was just, you know, I was just incredulous thinking of this. And I said, with all due respect, sir, thank God you were not in the United States government during the Cold War, because had that thinking prevailed in the battle against the Soviets, the United States would have lost, because these competitions are going to be one 
and lost based on coalitions and the ability to attract people to your way of thinking. And if you're just saying basically, you know, 80% of the world's population isn't important, you're going to lose this. And I think you're seeing that play out in real time in the Ukraine situation in the United Nations. And so it speaks a lot to the style of diplomacy that the Americans, the Europeans, the Japanese, and the Chinese are playing right now. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's been an absolutely fascinating week out here in Asia. So while you are in Germany out here in Asia, we saw a lot of movement on the diplomatic front in Southeast Asia as well as in China. China hosted a number of very important forums. So number one was the China Development Forum, and the other one was the Boao Forum for Asia that took place in Hainan Island. As a result of these two conferences that took place, many of the region's top leaders, including IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva, she was in Beijing and also in Hainan Island. And then we had the visits of Anwar Ibrahim, who was the Prime Minister of Malaysia, as well as the Singaporean Prime Minister Li Xianlong. And so one of the interesting things we're going to talk about today is how Xi Jinping Ping and new Chinese Prime Minister Li Qiang, how they're positioning their relations with the countries in Asia. And that speaks to this new book that's out, A Hierarchical Vision of Order, Understanding Chinese Foreign Policy in Asia. It's written by Antoine Roth, an assistant professor of international relations at Tohoku University in Sendai in beautiful northern Japan. Antoine, thank you so much for staying up late to join us. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I want to start our conversation with these two visits of Malaysian Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim and Prime Minister Li from Singapore. And in the readout coming out of the meetings with Xi Jinping and with Prime Minister Li Qiang, it was very interesting because reading your book, I saw many of the same themes in the way that they're framing China's relationship with smaller states in Southeast Asia. A couple of the themes were Asia for Asians. They never said the United States by name, but they referred to hegemonic forces. They talk about bullying and they talk about all of these themes about keeping foreigners out. Security became a prominent theme. Can you reflect a little bit for us based on the writing and research in your book, how these two meetings are anchored in some of the historical uh, themes that China uses to manage its relations here in Asia? Right. So as you noted, China is very active this day on the diplomatic stage, especially in Asia. And it is trying to push a very distinct narrative. The narrative being that the West is, especially the United States, is hegemonic, is employing power politics, is bullying others. And China is a different kind of great power, a better kind of great power that promotes a different type of international relations that is all about win-win cooperation, about exchanges and uh, e economic exchanges, cultural exchanges, and so forth. And that this is the way forward for Asia, that uh, US represent the past, that the region should leave behind, and China represents the future, and therefore is the natural leader of the region. So those two visits, the bilateral visits, as well as the foreign that you mentioned as well, are important locations for China to advance this narrative. So uh, what's interesting about the you know, Asia for Asian, the Asian values and narrative that uh, China pushes is that uh, you know, it is not very reflective of the historical reality, which is much more complex and nuanced and so forth. But what China is doing is basically using an idealized version of the past where China was always peaceful, where Chinese ties with other states in the region, in Southeast Asia, 
Asia and elsewhere were always based on cooperation, good economics exchanges, not military exchange and so forth. And this is kind of the idealized past. Again, the reality is more complex that China is alluding to and arguing that this is what is China today is trying to bring back to the region. And this is why other states like Malaysia, like Singapore, like all states in Southeast Asia, essentially, as well as Central Asia and elsewhere, should embrace and, and therefore accept China's vision for the future of the region. So, you know, the book takes a historical view of Chinese diplomacy and, and these kind of ideas. So, and of course, there's a lot of Chinese history to work with. So I was wondering kind of how you made your way, you know, kind of as a researcher through this kind of mass of history in, in China in order to isolate some of these kind of key factors that you look at. Well, of course, the beginning is doing a lot of reading, of course, of historical reading, trying to establish, basically trying to find out how each dynasty, especially the major ones like the Tang, the Ming, the Qing, uh, the Song of and all the major di dynasties try to conduct their foreign policy and what kind of frameworks they adopted to interact with the outside world and trying to find the lights of constituency because, of course, each dynasty faced a very different environment, very different kind of neighbors and uh, was some dynasties were in much more precarious position than other, let's say, and even during uh, each dynasty, there were many highs and lows, but trying to find the lines of consistency in this dynastic history. And that is the basis then on that I try to build on to uh, examine uh, present days. So of course, I will be happy to look at uh, different these lines in, of continuity, uh, specifically when it comes to China's discourse about the world and its diplomatic practices. One of the things I mentioned at the beginning is that we're in this moment right now where things are changing and we don't really quite understand how they're changing. But one of the questions we get asked from a number of different stakeholders is to try and put some shape to it. And, and Cobus is doing quite a bit of research on this in terms of this parallel international architecture that the Chinese appear to be building. They deny that they're doing this, but this is what seems to be happening. So in development finance, there's the New Development Bank, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. In the security realm, there's the Global Security Initiative. In the development realm, the Global Development Initiative, there's the Belt and Road, there's the Beidou Satellite System. There's all of these different features which seem to be operating outside of the existing international order or the Western-led system. Do you see any historical veins that connect what the Chinese are doing today with this parallel international architecture and some of the what they did in the past when China was, in fact, the most powerful hegemon in the world for many thousands of years, in fact. Right. So I think one good way to think about those historical parallels is what one noted scholar of China called Amako Satoshi calls the diplomacy of form. So it is about basically shaping uh, the diplomatic uh, framework within which then relations are conducted on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's where I think uh, one of the parallels I draw in my, in my book is the use of ritual, of tools of ritual, you know, uh, ritual simply meaning behavior that follows a certain code of conduct or well, the code of uh, quote-unquote proper behavior that other states are supposed to adopt with regard to China. So this kind of ritual code of behavior were the means, the main means through which China, the imperial China in different uh, time periods tried to uh, channel basically a relation with other polities. And uh, so this is basically, I think, what uh, China is trying to do today in a very different form, I should stress. Of course, uh, it is very 
dangerous to trace a direct line, uh, to simplistic line saying, for instance, that uh, China today is trying to build a new tribute system. This is way too simplistic, especially because the tribute system itself is an invention, uh, a term uh, proposed by scholars who were looking at China's imperial practice and does not really reflect the reality of uh, the imperial era. But basically, uh, this kind of uh, what some are call a tribute system or what I call a ritual order is basically a framework within which then relations are channeled. And this framework is based on first establishing durable link between China, the Chinese emperor in imperial times, and the rulers of other states, and establishing how these two rulers are positioned one to the other, of course, in uh, what China would uh, hoped would be a hierarchical relation, where China, of course, the emperor is the vassal, and other states are its uh, tributaries, or simply uh, bound to it in relations of, for instance, uncle, a fictive uncle and nephew relations, where the nephew is, of course, the, the, the other state, and uh, China is the uncle side. And so, when you have this kind of uh, basic framework that is settled, then normal issues, r everyday issues can be uh, discussed in a very pragmatic manner uh, as long as this overall framework that symbolizes Chinese superiority and that gives some sort of security to our uh, stability to the overall relations is uh, ensured and maintained. So if you look at what China is doing today is again trying to establish frameworks that demonstrate Chinese superiority. You know, all those forums, those uh, initiatives that China is proposing are ways for uh, China to attract other states to it and to invite them to join those different initiatives, the Global Development Initiatives, the Belt and Road Initiative, those different forums. And when uh, this framework, these regular forums, uh, this pattern of relation through regular forums and so on is uh, established, that demonstrate Chinese superiority, that ensure the, some sort of a stable uh, framework for relationship, then everyday uh, pragmatic issues of economic cooperation, of financial arrangements, of security cooperation as well, uh, and so so forth can be uh, discussed pragmatically on a case-by-case -case basis. So if I can just follow up very quickly on what you're saying is that in the word hierarchy is in the title of your book. So this is not a, you know, China as one among equals in Asia. Right. And you even mentioned the fact that China frames things as the periphery, which implies that China is at the center. And I remember a couple of years ago, there was an exchange that happened in the South Pacific. I forget what country. It may have been Wang Yi. It may have been somebody else. But it was basically a Chinese diplomat said, China is a great power and you are a small power and that is the reality, and I'm paraphrasing there. But that speaks a little bit to the discrepancies in size that China has over these other powers here in Asia, and that speaks to this hierarchy. So if it's not a tributary system, and it's funny to hear the Chinese recoil when you actually bring that up. Again, that may be in a Western construct as well. Then what is the hierarchy like? Explain this idea of a hierarchy of power in Asia. Right. That uh, quote that you mentioned was Yang Jiexue in 2010 at the Asian Regional Forum, who, who said, and it was actually a response to a Singaporean diplomat that was criticizing uh, Chinese activities in the South China Sea, where China was really pushing at the time. And yeah, uh, uh, Yang Jiexue said, uh, China is a great country, is a big country, other countries are small countries, and that's just a fact. And like, implying that everyone should know their place. So this is the most famous outburst to that effect. But of course, there are other uh, instances where 
For instance, Wang Yi in 2014 said that China would never accept unreasonable demands, quote unquote, from smaller states. That expresses basically the same idea. The idea being that in order for international order to function, the different status of big and small countries should be recognized. As you say, uh, the, the inequality in power is a reality, right? China is big, other states are smaller compared to China. That is indeed the reality. That is a description of the type of relations that uh, the two sides have. China is more powerful, is more economically wealthy, and so forth. But where the idea of hierarchy comes in is that basically the social arrangements, this kind of structure that I just mentioned, should reflect this reality and assign a proper place, proper in quotes, to each side. So this is like, for instance, in very practical terms, China is creating all those frameworks where it sits at the center of. As you mentioned, you know, China talks of uh, peripheral diplomacy. That's the way it talks about relation with other Asian states, which puts it at the center. But the Belt and Road Initiative, the Global in Development Initiatives, and so forth, are all Chinese initiatives where others are asked to participate in. And these uh, Chinese initiatives are obviously meant to display Chinese leadership. And when others embrace those initiatives, that means they accept their place as followers of what China is proposing. And so that's uh, why, where the, why uh, I, I talk about the hierarchical order, because it is an order based on structures that emphasize China's central position or superior position, leading position, no matter how you want to phrase it, and other status as followers or as uh, smaller states that accept the leadership of China in that respect. So, you know, you make the point that at the same time, even as, you know, kind of this logic underlies a lot of Chinese foreign policy, Chinese spokespeople are also very critical of Western hegemony and very critical, like frequently accusing the United States, particularly of hegemonism and kind of bossing other countries around. So how do they kind of draw the line between those two different concepts? Right. So, as I said earlier, the idea is that it is natural that, you know, small states and big states have different role in international relations. In the Chinese uh, way of thinking, I mean, you know, it's not necessarily only Chinese, by the way, you know, uh, but it's not expressed as clearly perhaps in other, uh, in Western tradition, is that, of course, great powers have important role to play and a leading role to play in international affairs. That is just the natural way of things. That is how international order works in any situation. So, what the Chinese are arguing is that if that's a reality, if you have this special special role for great powers and you know a following a followers role for small powers, then all what matters is the nature of this relation between the great power side and the small power side. And the, what the Chinese are arguing is that the United States and other Western powers before that, you know, this criticism goes all the way back to the era of colonialism, of Western colonialism by uh, imperial powers like France and uh, and the UK and uh, Great Britain, is that those Western powers behave exploitatively, that uh, they uh, bully others, that they exploit, they, they attract their resources for their own uh, enrichment and tell others what how to do, you know, this the standards of human rights and democracy that uh, Western states impose on others and uh, giving them no choice but to either comply or be cast aside in some way. And what China is arguing is that, well, this is the hegemonic way of the West. What we do is different. What we propose is win-win cooperation, uh, mutual respect, you know, uh, civilization, uh, respect between civilization or respect for sovereignty and so forth. And since this is a better way of doing things than what the West is doing, it is still, you know, uh, hierarchical uh, and in unequal because China takes the leading position in those arrangements still, but it is non-exploitative. At least that's the, the Chinese uh, way of describing them. And therefore it is better than the West. And this is why China deserves in a way to be uh, the, the center of international life in Asia, at least. 
Would a Western international relations scholar, in present company excluded in part because you've been in Asia for so long and you study Chinese and Japanese uh, international relations so deeply, but let's take you know a Henry Kissinger style personality. Would he describe the Chinese thinking of what you've been talking about as realism and as, as real politic? I mean, is it really just basically big powers have more strength, therefore they deserve more respect, and smaller powers have less strength, therefore they deserve less respect? And that is a an oversimplification of realism, but at the same time, there is some link to that. Right. So yes, in a way that, of course, what Henry Kissinger, the, the way Henry Kissinger thought about, uh, or th- still thinks about international politics is as a great power game, right? That basically small states matter very little in the shaping of international order. It's only like what great powers do among themselves. And that's what shapes international order. That's, you know, as you say, is... a, a Which explains of- why Kissinger and the Chinese seem to get along quite well, even to this day. Indeed, indeed. Because, you know, when you look at Chinese writings on the topic today, you know, you see very a lot of similarities in the way that uh, you know, for, for China, it's, it is true it is also all about how China positioned itself regarding the US first and foremost, but also other major powers within the BRICS, for instance India, Russia, and uh, uh, South Africa, and so on. And I should say that you know, China's approach to any region in the world is first to identify what the power structure is, the international structure they say, Guoji Guoju, so the international structure is in a given region, uh, determine who is the major power, and developing ties with the region starts with the major powers and then goes outwards towards the smaller players in the system. So in that sense, you know, China is very realist. It's absolutely true. And that, as you said, uh, Eric, this is why uh, no, they, got, they got along so well with uh, Henry Kissinger. But, you know, I should add, it's still a bit more than that, though, because uh, China does place a lot of care in its relation with smaller states. It is not believing that, you know, uh, international order is only about relation with other states. It's also about smaller states are invited to join this international structure. And even though those structures are established by a great power, by China first and foremost, and China itself takes a leading role in them, you know, it's still a dialogue between uh, them and those smaller sides, and other states do still have the agency to participate and are invited to participate and to engage in a so-called, quote-unquote, win-win cooperation with China. So, yes, it starts with the great power, absolutely, but for China, it's also about inviting other smaller states to cooperate with it, and uh, I should stress that China is putting a lot of care in those relations with uh, smaller powers and is uh, making a lot of efforts to invite very regularly the leaders of even the least powerful states in Asia and elsewhere, like, for instance, Laos or or, uh, Kyrgyzstan, to visit China, to engage in cooperation with China and so forth. Much more uh, care that, uh, I must admit, uh, the U.S. is doing uh, in most situations. In that same vein, you also make the point that one of the kind of dominant discourses in Chinese foreign policy over a long time is presenting itself as a moral power. So I was wondering, like, if you could talk a little bit about this kind of morality in foreign policy and how that contrasts to ideas that we see very strongly coming out of Western powers at the moment, you know, kind of framing Western foreign policy as values based. So uh, first, uh, starting with uh, the historical part of the analysis, Chinese discourse about the world was always very moralistic. You know, in imperial times, the emperor was considered the most moral human being on the planet. You know, that was what made him worthy to be the son of heaven and and to rule over uh, China and and uh, even uh, to to an extent the world beyond. So and this was uh, like the 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 word for uh, virtue, uh, also as a connection of powers. That virtuous power is what brings other to you. 
and uh, the the discourse from in the imperial era about the world was all about how the the virtue of the uh, emperor was like spreading throughout like uh, shining throughout the world and others were uh, in awe uh, in front of this virtue and were thankful and were coming to the emperor because they were attracted by this vir virtuous leadership so to speak so that was the discourse in imperial times and this kind of moral discourse is still very present but there was a radical change when china entered the modern society of sovereign states uh, you know was forced to enter the modern society of so sovereign states in the late 19th century and early 20th century where uh, china was of course pushed to the periphery of this um, modern society of inter of uh, sovereign states by uh, western power imperial powers that were uh, dominating at the time and this experience is really what shaped the moralist uh, discourse that china still uh, uses today where it, it has itself uh, experienced the you know the the harm of western exploitation western imperialism it determined that this was you know uh, that was the way the west was doing things that it was bullying uh, warmongering uh, you know exploitative and so forth and that china would offer a better type of leadership a more moral type of leadership and this is where this kind of claim to moral superiority comes from because as i said earlier this uh, comparison between western hegemonism or us uh, hegemonism and uh, chinese benevolent leadership is why china argues it is deserving of this central position in international affairs because it is offering a morally superior type of uh, international leadership so how this compares to the western uh, style uh, of uh, you know value based uh, discourse so to speak i think the easiest way to think about it is simply that in the western discourse what a good so to, uh, quote unquote uh, government or a good state is one that treats its citizens well right it is one that respects human rights that is democratic and so on and uh, states that are bad, quote unquote bad states are the ones that are uh, exploiting their uh, citizens which is you know a, a large part of the western criticism of china at the moment because of uh, the uyghurs in xinjiang of hong kong and uh, other issues like human rights issues Whereas uh, Chinese discourse about morality is about morality between states. So a bad state, quote unquote, is one that exploits other states, that withdraws their resource, that uh, tries to tell them what to do, how to arrange their international affairs. And reversely, a good, quote unquote, state is one that respects others' choice about domestic governance, uh, that uh, proposes only win-win cooperation. Again, this is one of China's big slogans. And uh, those conducts uh, relations in a non-exploitative basis. It's interesting you say that because in the security realm, China often frames U.S. security partners here in Asia as some kind of victims of American imperialism and American kind of manipulation. And just staying with the security realm, the other day we published a fascinating map in our newsletter that had all of the U.S. security matrices now around China. And it is quite impressive, actually. And this is something that really has just ramped up under the Biden administration. But you have the Quad with Australia, India, and Japan. Then you have ACUS, which is Australia, UK, and the United States, a new massive submarine deal. And then there is the alliance network that the United States has. Japan and South Korea are making amends. Uh, the Japanese, where you are, are beefing up their security budgets and whatnot. And this led Xi Jinping last month to say this, and I'd like you to decode his words for us. He said, quote, Western countries led by the United States have implemented all-around containment, encirclement, and suppression of China. And I find that interesting because taken by itself, it looks like an expression of fear and insecurity and weakness almost, which is not 
at all what we associate with Xi Jinping's foreign policy and how he identifies and self-identifies. Help us decode what he meant by that and what he's trying to communicate to other Chinese policymakers. Right. So first, I think, you know, this was a especially dramatic expression of a very long-held Chinese beliefs. You know, ever since the end of the Cold War, the Chinese have believed that the U.S. was out to contain China in some way or to change China and then to contain China. And, you know, you heard like the discourse about uh, U.S. containment of China is not, of course, uh, new at all. And I think First, what should be said first is that uh, Xi Jinping's kind of dramatic language reflects an assessment, which I think is accurate, that the U.S. has really ramped up its efforts to tie those partnerships around Chinese periphery to limit exports of uh, sensitive technologies to China and so forth. So, you know, of course, that is, it's not surprising that from the Chinese perspective, this looks like containment and uh, suppression. So, you know, that, that I think that should be said first. But I should also mention, so this discourse about uh, U.S. containment and U.S. Cold War thinking, so to speak, and uh, alliance being a relic of the Cold War, is part of this broader discourse about the U.S. way of doing things being morally inferior to the Chinese one. So Cold War thinking of what the U.S., is, uh, what China is uh, accusing the U.S. of uh, doing is trying to league against, the, like, creating one camp against another camp, or uh, excluding, try to exclude a country or limit the options of one country in order to benefit one's old own camp. Yeah, so, we hear a lot about block diplomacy, that they're accusing the Americans of organizing blocks against China. Right. Yes. So this, for the Chinese, is Cold War thinking because, of course, the Cold War was defined by two blocks, right? And China is offering a new way forward, a new type of international relations. That's one of Xi Jinping's slogan, although that's not one you hear so much at the moment. But this is a type that goes beyond this kind of block diplomacy. And one very common talking point from China today, but of course that also goes back, is that China is not China's arrangements, China's partnerships and agreements with other states are not targeted at anyone. China is willing to work with anyone. It is an inclusive vision of order, whereas uh, China accuses the U.S. of having an exclusive vision of order that is aimed at limiting uh, the states that the U.S. does not like. So you uh, you call uh, you know Xi Jinping's outburst kind of a sign of weakness or of uh, concerns. Well, just by looking at the words, it seems that way. But again, I don't want to assign any value onto it because again, I don't fully understand the depth of it. And also, the translation. You know, a lot of times these things as they're translated in English lose a lot of their meaning. And so that's why I think there's sometimes a misreading in the West of what Chinese intent is based on poor translation. No, I think, uh, you know, the the language of Xi Jinping, again, is more uh, kind of significant in the way that it is at the top level in a fairly prominent speech. Even It was not like one of the main sessions of the National People's Congress that uh, Xi Jinping said that. It was in a side meeting, so it's not the most prominent forum. But still, it was a very prominent uh, speech, and it's Xi Jinping himself saying that. So that is unprecedented. But I think it's a reaction to what the Chinese see as an unprecedented level of uh, Western so-called quote-unquote containment efforts. But this language, again, is very common in Chinese discourse about the words like, you know, you read the People's Daily, that's basically at least once or twice or maybe even every day uh, uh, of the week, you have one article accusing the US of containment, of Cold War thinking, of hegemonism, of suppression of China. So the sense of urgency is clearly growing, but this discourse is not particularly new or specific to Xi Jinping or to that occasion. So, you know, one of the kind of interesting parallels we're seeing at the moment is that both critics of China and Chinese spokespeople themselves in different ways 
say or imply that one of the things that China would like to do is to reform the global order. And, you know, on the Chinese side, that there's been frequent frequent calls for different kind of global institutions to be reformed. What's less common is actually is a lot of detailed discussion about exactly which kind of reforms, you know, one would see under a Chinese-led or Chinese-shaped kind of global order. So I was wondering, you know, for you, it's obviously difficult to look forward, but like, you know, what, what would the reforms possibly look like? Or what is some of the thinking about possible kind of global reforms that the Chinese government would like to push? Right. So, I mean, in a way, the easiest way to think about it is that China is opposed to whatever the, the, West is, the US is doing <laughs> at the moment, so to speak. But like, no, more generally, is simply like China is opposed to Western readings of so-called liberal values, so democracy, human rights, and so forth. And uh, China is advocating, uh, some have called a kind of returning to Westphalian basics. So West, the Westphalian vision of order and of, uh, is kind of a vision of order that is based only on sovereignty and on live and let live, basically on each state having its own system and agreeing to disagree on many issues, but just looking at certain areas of common ground, and but not trying to determine how each side should live. The reason why it's called the Westphalian system is because it is a reference to the end of the wars of religion in Europe, where uh, basically the in the Holy German Empires, uh, both the Catholic and the Protestant uh, states agreed to basically let each others keep their own uh, religion, each version of religion. So it's a pluralist vision of order. And of course, uh, the term Westphalia itself is, uh, again, kind of a simplification of a very complex uh, history, but that's not neither here or there. But what China is advocating then is this kind of return to basically a pluralist version of live and let live of international order. And that means that in international institutions like the UN and so forth, which China uh, says uh, is a big supporter of because uh, it believes that it can shape the UN to resemble more something that it would be to its liking, discussions would be based only on like standard for international uh, communications, for for instance, but not on trying to uh, having a certain regime uh, like that should be implemented by states in their own territory. So, of course, uh, it could be argued that in an interconnected world that we live in, uh, this kind of uh, only state-to-state, very thin version of inter- state-to-state diplomacy that leaves a domestic structure basically intact, uh, each state free to determine them as it wishes, uh, you could argue that is not very realistic because economies are so imbricated because we live in a globalized world. But, you know, the, the, the Chinese would say that, well, you know, we, that can be managed as long as we have a proper structure that respects each country's model of governance and uh, the discussions are based on, on this kind of uh, uh, mutual respect. That's their argument, at least. To what extent that is uh, actually applicable in practice and going into the future uh, with these very complex uh, issues like technical standards and so forth, that remains to be seen, of course. Yeah, and one of the other hallmarks of that thinking is the end of what the Chinese call universal values. So the idea that there's one human rights definition for the whole world, or they just loathe uh, the idea of sanctions, that one country gets to unilaterally sanction another country. Of course, that's the United States and Europe that they don't like on that. But that's, I think they'd like to see an end to that as well. And there's quite a bit of sympathy for that in many parts of the global South who have been the recipients of either sanctions or human rights criticisms from the West. They also really love to point out the hypocrisy of the West. You'll see in a lot of Chinese official Twitter feeds how they'll say this kind you know, the US talks about human rights and then they'll show police brutality against African Americans or they'll show a lot of these inconsistencies to kind of highlight the weaknesses of the current system. So, you know, speaking of other parts of the global south, you focused on 
the history in Asia. Asia is in many ways unique for the Chinese because of the geography and the proximity and the ethnic binds, the diaspora. And so the connections between China and countries like Vietnam, where I'm at, are bound by so many other things than just politics and security, but again, people and culture and whatnot. But if you are sitting in Pretoria or Nairobi or in Santiago, Chile, and you know, foreign minister XYZ comes up to you and says, Antoine, tell me what I need to know about what China's done in Asia and how that may apply to South America, even parts of South Asia and other parts of the global South. What are the lessons that people looking at this and reading your book should take away? That is an excellent question. And that's kind of the way I end the book on a very open suggestion of what China is trying to do in Asia, of course, is it is increasingly trying to do in the rest of the world. I think the first thing to note is, as you just said, Eric, that uh, ties between China and other Asian states are much more deep and complex than in the rest of the world and also uh, face many more issues. Of course, the only state that have for some territorial dispute with China are states that are uh, on uh, China's own uh, borders, right? It, it's uh, logical, which means that if you're sitting in Pretoria... Well, that, well, the South China Sea is a... I don't know how you define the South China Sea. Right. Yeah, but still, no, I still define that as a territorial dispute is just, you know, uh, even if you sit in uh, Malaysia or Indonesia, China is just next door and you still have, um, you know, the, the Chinese claim the whole of the sea. So that means you have a de facto a territorial uh, dispute over at least a maritime area with China, which is not a problem you have if you sit in Pretoria or in uh, Buenos Aires. Yes. So that's one reason why I would say that uh, for other states, Accepting China's vision of order, embracing its framework for uh, so-called uh, this kind of hierarchical relation where uh, you accept to praise Chinese leadership and respect the r Chinese red lines about its so-called core in interests. That is, you know, the one that Eric yourself, uh, you, you uh, mentioned very often. So Hong Kong, Taiwan, Xinjiang and Tibet, those are the four big. And if you are a city in Pretoria in a capital in Latin America, respecting those red lines is not that difficult, easy, especially yeah. because mo care. most states, yeah, most states don't care about that, right? So that means that accepting China's vision of order is actually easier. And, you know, there is, so that means, because it's pretty cheap, basically, to ask other states to simply just say that, oh, China is a great international leader, and we, we welcome this, this model of win-win cooperation, and basically engage in those cooperative ties with China in the hope of getting some uh, economic benefits and so on. So in that, in that way, uh, you know, the lesson of my book is that if you do not have all those, you know, very sensitive issues with China around territory and other issues that are linked with uh, geographical proximity, then ties with China are not that difficult to manage. The problem is that if and when a major issue comes up, the Chinese can be uh, surprisingly inflexible if they think that you know their honors uh, or whatever you want to call it, their prestige is under attack, or if they think that other states uh, disrespect them. And uh, you already have cases, uh, I think, for instance, I don't remember which country it was on, on the coast of Africa, that uh, there was a problem with fishing, and that the, basically the Chinese kind of uh, picked uh, a fit and uh, criticized the country question for this misbullying uh, of uh, Chinese fishermen and for disrespecting Chinese interests and so on. So when an issue in dispute does occur, the lesson from Asia is that the Chinese can be uh, very inflexible or easy to take offense and to push back uh, very strongly. And you mentioned earlier uh, like economic sanctions that, uh, of course, the, the Chinese hate the kind of sanctions for uh, domestic human rights violations and so forth that uh, Western states do have uh, implemented in, in several cases. But the Chinese themselves, so they, they reject these type of sanctions, but they are very willing to implement sanctions of their own if against, uh, so quote 
quote-unquote offenses against their core interests, for instance, South Korea, Australia, Lithuania, so the, the list is growing longer and longer, Norway as well. So the Chinese are very willing to uh, impose coercive means on other states if they think their core interests are under threat. And that's another uh, lesson, I guess, for that for everyone around the world, that they have to be uh, open about the risks of, quote-unquote, angering China on any of those issues. The book is a hierarchical vision of order, understanding Chinese foreign policy in Asia. But as you can hear, there are applications and lessons for this for everyone around the world. It was written by Antoine Roth, an assistant professor of international relations at Tohoku University in beautiful Sendai, Japan. Antoine, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It's a fascinating book. I wish I could recommend for our listeners to read it, but unfortunately, your publisher has got these crappy <laughs> academic pricing 50 bucks for a kindle version is a little bit high and uh yeah ugh, i just I, everybody in the business hates this everybody hates this yeah i feel sorry about it too i apologize yeah unfortunately academics have no no control over it yeah it's so good. Yeah, and the author, the authors, first and foremost. I mean, I, I would love for everyone to be able to read my book easily, but unfortunately, it is one of those damn at academic prices. So hopefully, you can find it in library near you. Yes. Yes, go to your library if you're a student. Also, if you are really interested and you have the cash, it is absolutely worth it. You can find it on Amazon and it is available as a Kindle. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing and want to stay in touch with you, where can they find you? So I am on Twitter, at Antoine Roth, like my name, uh, with um, a capital letter for R, so A and R, so Antoine Roth, uh, at Antoine Roth. Wonderful. Well, we'll put a link to Antoine's Twitter handle and also to the Amazon, just in case you want to buy it. And you can. Uh, we'll put a link to the Amazon link there as well in the show notes. Thank you so much, Antoine. Thank you for staying up. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, Kobus. There it is. A new Sinocentric international order is taking shape here in Asia. You're sitting in Johannesburg looking at this from an African perspective. What did you hear in Antoine's comments and in his book that you think will gain traction in a place like South Africa? And again, this is very interesting timing because of what your government in particular has been doing with Russia and China in recent months. How do you think this is going to play in other parts of the world? This is a very interesting question. As you say, South Africa is a small but vocal proponent of kind of alternative orders. South Africa has through the years and particularly now like been really critical about kind of Western pressure for African countries to fall into their orbit. And at the same time has been pushing for the expiration of kind of alternative orders. And so, you know, at the moment, I think a lot of South Africans, I think, are quite critical of it because they are worried about what the, what the fallout is going to be around this, this kind of very visible alignment, you know, around Russia particularly. But at the same time, it also fits into a longer trajectory in South Africa of challenging, you know, these, these international orders, which, you know, we have to admit are frequently quite bad for the global south. You know, so for example, South Africa... India has for a long time 
been challenging like intellectual property rights around medication, particularly for HIV and also for COVID. You know, a, a, you know, kind of around the logic that why is it that companies in a small handful of Western countries make all this money? You know, kind of, and everyone in the global south has to pay so much for this medication. So there is all of this really practical reasons why this kind of message would resonate, and that, that it is resonating in you know in places like Pretoria. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of worries in global south countries about what it would actually look like on the ground and you know kind of as as we said even as china criticizes hegemony they are also very very willing to punish countries that they feel have, have crossed their red lines you know so kind of for kind of for global south countries to navigate between that contradiction is already a big challenge okay so remember a couple years ago i came up with this mnemonic device for the red lines and we talked about this in the show here so okay and it's getting longer, by the way, the mnemonic device. I have to say, like, I've never been able to remember it. <laughs> I need a mnemonic for the mnemonic. Okay, work with me here. Okay, so 4-T-H-K-S-J-S-C-C. That is a password. <laughs> it's, not a, a, it's not a mnemonic. <laughs> no, no, no. We're, okay, here we go. Uh, the four T's, Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen Square, the party. You can't criticize those. The party is a broad definition in particular. It's really challenging the legitimacy of the Communist Party to run China. That is what we hear out of the West and whatnot. HK is Hong Kong. XJ is Xinjiang. SC now is South China Sea. Then you have COVID now for the COVID investigation, the origin theories. That's what prompted sanctions against Australia. And... Again, the, the, what they're calling these core interests are getting longer and more sensitive, and especially as they feel encircled now. And so I, I think that's very interesting. Now, going back to the Global South perspective on all of this, so the book is really about China in Asia. And while we look at China for the most part, I really encourage policymakers, think tank analysts, scholars in places like Africa, South America, and other parts of the Global South to be looking at what are the Asian countries, particularly those here in Southeast Asia, their history and their tactics for dealing with China? Because I think there are, in fact, more lessons for studying Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore in many ways than studying China in all of this for a country like Ghana. I had a conversation last week with a Ghanaian analyst on the show and in our Africa podcast. And one of the things that he said was that Ghanaian policymakers don't have a very deep knowledge of China. And I think they would benefit enormously from these kind of books and to study, again, how has Vietnam managed its ties for thousands of years with China? Because they are the ultimate in hedgers. They know exactly how to play the U.S., the Europeans, the Russians, and the Chinese off one another. Very, very, very skilled in that. So there's two lessons here. One, what are the Chinese doing? And two, what are the peripheral countries also doing? Yeah, I completely agree. And I also agree that it would be really important for African countries to clue themselves in about how these kind of smaller Asian countries deal with this issue. The thing is, is that, you know, with this is an additional um, challenge, which is knowing what one's own priorities are and what one's own needs are. And, you know, kind of, it, it seems like an obvious thing, but I think it's, it's been quite difficult, I think, for Africa to define these needs, particularly when it when it goes to the multilateral level. You know, it's been hard, I think, beyond development. It's been hard for the African Union, for example, to set collective foreign policy, you know, kind of um, benchmarks or, or goals, for example. And there, I think, also kind of studying how a bloc like ASEAN, for example, deals with China is would be very, very valuable. 
and just how the different countries, because even with ASEAN as a whole, it's a little bit like the African Union, that it's a very weak body and it requires consensus. And ASEAN doesn't have the challenge that the African Union has because ASEAN is you know, a fifth the size. And so getting consensus in ASEAN, even though that's difficult, is much easier than getting consensus at a place like the African Union. That being said, ASEAN as a bloc tends to be doing quite well in the current moment that we're in, in terms of managing great power dynamics and not alienating one or the other. Well, exactly, right? Because they know what they want from the different powers. And and, and I think many, like both sides, of, like both in China and in the US, they don't necessarily love that. But this kind of split between the US as a security partner and China as an economic partner, it makes a lot of sense for a group like ASEAN. You know, and it, and, and that kind of that kind of split, you know, the, the African Union would have to kind of find their own way around that particular split, for example. And part of the advantage that I see just in living here in Southeast Asia is the frequency of high-level visits. So we've seen, for example, in Africa for the past couple of months, just a parade of American officials, uh, one after another. And Vice President Kamala Harris was just in Africa last week. That's a regular Thursday here, okay? I mean, and, and it's exceptional in many parts of Africa, but it's not exceptional in Southeast Asia. And so you get a regular, regular stream of visits and so there's just a lot more contact with the great powers. And I think that does play a little bit into it in terms of formulating what you want out of them because, you know, so-and-so's coming next Thursday. We got to figure out what we're going to talk to him about. And so that happens quite a bit. And especially now in this period of heightened competition, we're starting to see visits just going up all the time. And I think that exposure, that personal direct exposure has a big impact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly in in the context, as Antoine was pointing out, that the, the, you know it, it's a kind of ritual, as the, you know, also the it's almost like a ritualistic form of, of foreign policy, where these these indiv- these visits, you know, fit into this wider relationship building in a way that that you know, kind of that the way that. That there's a kind of in, in Western powers there is this kind of wax and wane, you know, in terms of like how how interested a particular administration in Washington, for example, is in Africa. You know, depends very much on on who that administration is and what their deal is and what the the circumstances are. In contrast, the Chinese have this kind of has this ritualistic kind of aspect where it, you know, it's it, and it builds constancy where the chi- China's always there. It always shows up, and that makes a, a big difference, particularly in Africa, who's very used to being ignored. Also want to point everybody to another book on this subject, Everything Under the Heavens by Howard French. Many of you may know Howard French from his writings on Africa. He also is an accomplished writer on China, was based in China for the New York Times. We actually interviewed him about Everything Under the Heavens many, many years ago, and uh, so you can look through the archives on that. But he talks a lot about carrots and sticks that the Chinese have historically used in Southeast Asia. So it's an interesting compliment to Antoine's book, and I hope that people go out and buy both because it's a fascinating subject that you really can't understand what China is doing today without understanding the deep historical context. Of course, that applies to every country and every foreign policy. The difference, though, of course, is that China's history is just so much bigger and richer than, than what we have written. In the, it's just, it just goes back a long way. And I think it's also quite poorly understood by the outside world in many respects. We, we do very well in the contemporary history, but not as well necessarily in explaining some of the imperial history quite as well. So I just wanted to kind of put a, a flag up for that. So uh, I know 
that we're running short on time. But let me just get a final thought from you in terms of the big takeaway from where we are in this moment. That's how we started the conversation. Do you have any more clarity in terms of understanding the magnitude of the moment after talking with somebody like Antoine? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this work really provides so much context and texture, you know, in, in, in talking about what the actual relationships are like, you know, on, on the ground. I think, you know, it, it also feeds into these big conversations that we touched on at the beginning of, of, of really, are we talking about a bipolar kind of global organization or are we talking about a more complex one where different powers of different sizes are finding creative and dynamic ways of working together or not. And if you're talking from a place like India, for example, that's the natural way of looking at the world, you know, particularly looking at the 21st century. Like, you know, Indian analysts reject this idea that they, that it's going to be China versus the US. You know, they, and that, that's very similar for people, in the, for um, analysts in Turkey, for example, and many other, you know, kind of global South countries that see themselves as having a natural leadership position in the world. So that's a big philosophical dispute that's actually bigger than the one, you know, about for example, the, the U.S. versus China. Okay, well, let's leave the conversation there. If this is a topic that interests you, these types of deep dives into Chinese foreign policy, then I can't recommend enough to try out the fantastic newsletter that we're putting out every single day. It goes out at 6 a.m. Washington time. It's called the China Global South Daily Brief. Basically, it's what happened the night before and everything and you get a you get the deep dive into it and so if you're following china and the world and the world outside of the u.s europe and northeast asia then this is something that you're going to want to have and the idea of what we're trying to do with this service is to make it easier for you to save time that is rather than you going through 25 30 sources we literally are spending four to six hours a day combing through the different sources going through chinese sources going through all of the different news publications finding the tweets finding connecting dots and doing all of that together. And the whole point is just to kind of give you a curated download of here's what happened in the past 24 hours. And so we're really super proud of the work that Cobus and the team are doing. We've got editors in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. We're doing this now in French, Arabic, and English. And we're also going to be launching a new climate section for Africa. So keep an eye out for that. Once again, go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. ChinaGlobalSouth.com slash subscribe. You can try it free for 30 days. And if you're a student or teacher, send me an email, eric at chinaafricaproject.com, and I'll send you the links for a half-off discount. It's a great offer. Anyway, let's leave the conversation there. Copus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China Global South podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com. <laughs>